This is a record that God has given to us, eternal life, and that life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's begin our study of God's word with a few moments of silent prayer. Father, we thank you for this time to come before your throne of grace as we prepare to look at your word. Help us to understand these things, to evaluate them, to be able to hold up the objective light of your word, the mirror of doctrine that it provides to reflect upon our own life and our own thinking, that we may see and understand how these things apply to our lives, that we may accept the challenge of making you the priority in our life as we advance to spiritual maturity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to John 15. John chapter 15, and we continue our study of the upper room discourse. <coughs> if you were here the first hour, probably wondered if I was ever going to make it. I don't know how far I'll get this hour. Okay. John chapter 15, verse... 18. The subject shifts for the first 17 verses. The focus has been on the method of the spiritual life, which is to abide in Christ. Our relationship with Christ, which comes about, it's broken by sin when we grieve and quench the Holy Spirit. Recovery is through confession of sin, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess, which means to admit or acknowledge our sin to God, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It is only through abiding in Christ under the filling ministry of the Holy Spirit, walking by means of the Spirit, that we can grow and advance in our spiritual life and glorify God. Now what I mean by the spiritual life is our relationship to God and our internal growth as a result of regeneration. See, when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the Scripture says we are born again. That means that at that instant, we pass from spiritual death to spiritual life. We're born spiritually dead, but physically alive. And our, as spiritually dead people, we do not have a spiritual life. Now, we live in an era today when people are using the term spirituality and spiritual life to cover all the whole gamut of strange and exotic and ascetic practices. For some people, spirituality has to do with ritual. It has to do with going through certain practices in some kind of a uh, sacramentalist type of service. For other people, the spiritual life is related to their emotional development, getting in touch with their inner feelings, their inner child or inner adult or inner delinquent or whatever it might be. Uh, For other people, spirituality has to do with uh, uh, asceticism, giving things up, 
somehow impressing God with what we don't do as opposed to what we do. Uh, that's not how the Bible defines spiritual life or spirituality. The Bible defines spirituality in terms of our relationship with God, specifically in terms of our relationship with the Holy Spirit. It is that life that is comprised of our fellowship with the Lord, abiding in Christ, and our walking by means of God the Holy Spirit. And as we have seen, the objective measure is related to our obedience. But that obedience is not simple morality. It goes far beyond morality and is an integrity based upon uh, the relationship with God the Holy Spirit that is uniquely given to the church-age believer. No other believer in human history has been simultaneously indwelt and filled by God the Holy Spirit. It is through the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit that we learn doctrine, assimilate it, make it a part of our thinking so that it saturates our soul. We are transformed as a result of that. He works in us and through us to do God's will. And eventually, as we grow and mature like a plant, Eventually, he produces fruit in our life. This is why Jesus says that apart from me, you can do nothing. He then moved from the principle of fellowship with him to showing the relationship between obedience and keeping his commandments and fulfilling the ultimate commandment for the church age, which is to love one another. And that love is not measured by how we feel about one another. It's not measured by uh, uh sentimentality, it's not measured by warm, fuzzy feelings, because we may or may not have any of that. We may not even know the person we need to have that uh, attitude of love towards, in which case it is an impersonal kind of love. And it is always measured. We saw it this morning in our study of Exodus in our Old Testament survey, that love for God is always measured in objective terms by our obedience. It is always related to our obedience, application of doctrine. It's not measured by some sense of the presence of God or emotion or warmth or some overwhelming feeling that we have. It is measured by obedience. This is why Jesus says um, that we are to love one another. And then verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. So there's this relationship between um, obedience to God and love. Now, in verse 18, we come to the enemy, one of the enemies of the spiritual life. There are three enemies to spiritual life in Scripture. Two are outside of us, and one is inside of us. The two outside of us are the devil and the cosmic system. (coughs) This is the subject of this passage. The internal enemy is our sin nature, which has an affinity and attraction to cosmic thinking. Now, when Jesus says, if the world hates you, he uses a very precise word in Greek that looks like this. It is kosmos. K-O-S-M-O-S. And I'm going to transliterate that and talk about it as cosmic. This is cosmic thinking. There's a certain type of thinking in Scripture, and before we get to fully understanding it, we must understand the meaning of this word. The root meaning of cosmos in Greek thought was order, something that was orderly, something that was thought out. It was used three different ways in the Scriptures. It's used to refer to the orderly universe, especially the earth, the orderly universe, the laws of the universe, all that, especially the earth. 
And then secondly, it is used in, in a figurative way. It's called, the technical term is metonymy. That is when you, when you speak of something that's a part of something else. Uh, you can use a metonymy of the part for the whole, or the whole for the part. About four different ways you can use metonymy. But when you speak of the world, what you're really talking about is the inhabitants of the earth. That's where you speak about the system, and you're really referencing that which is inside the system. So the whole stands for the part. So the world can then refer to the human inhabitants of the earth. Of course, an example of that is in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his uniquely born Son. So... So the second meaning is in reference to just the human inhabitants of the earth without reference to their salvation or lack of salvation. And then third, it's used to refer to Satan's realm of evil. He is the god of this world, god of this age. He is the uh, leader of this cosmic system. And so it's a technical term that is used to refer to Satan's realm of evil. Now, evil... When we think of evil or talk about evil in common everyday language, we often talk of evil in terms of that which is the most heinous, serious criminal activity, violent activity, something of that nature. We think about the Holocaust as an example of evil. Yet the scripture uses the term in a different way. Not, sometimes evil is used in that sense, but many times evil, the, the most insidious evil of in all of history, is religion. Any religion that emphasizes morality as a way to God's favor and approval is insidiously evil. In fact, I think some of the most evil people in all of human history are religious people because they teach that you can have a relationship with God apart from Jesus Christ. Now, the Scripture teaches that there is, and it does, that there is salvation in no other name other than Jesus Christ, and that we are saved by faith and not by works, then to teach that your works can gain approval with God is a direct lie, and if you follow that, you will end up in eternal condemnation. Nothing can be more evil than that, because it will cost you your eternal destiny. So evil is not necessarily that which looks bad. It may be clothed in the garb of good, goodness, altruism, righteousness, uh, generosity, welfare. In fact, you would be surprised who I th- some of you wouldn't, but many of you would be surprised who I think are some of the most evil people in our society. Uh, they are often on the covers of magazines and in the newspaper, and they, they uh, promote Satan's cosmic agenda. Now, let's get a definition. A definition of the cosmic system. It is Satan's orderly, cohesive, and multifaceted. Now, what I mean by multifaceted is that it includes systems that, from our perspective, may be opposite one another. For example, different world religions may teach what appear to be opposing points, but nevertheless they are still part of Satan's cosmic system because they promote his ultimate agenda. So it includes a multifaceted systems of thinking, which include a purpose, a policy, which is always somehow based on works. You can take every world religion, no matter what it is, from Hinduism 
Buddhism, Taoism, Jehovah's Witness, uh, many Christian aberrations. Uh, you can take it, and the way they gain approval with God is through works. And Christianity excludes works. The only work that matters in Christianity is the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It doesn't matter what we have done because Christ paid the penalty for all of our, of all of our sin. So there is a direct antagonism and distinction between biblical Christianity and all the world's religions. Now, Satan's orderly, cohesive, and multifaceted system of thinking, which includes a purpose, a policy, and a structure of authority designed to subvert the human race and gain control over the world he now rules. This cosmic system includes a, the whole variety of world religions. See, the way I'm using religion is that religion is man's attempt to gain God's approval through his own efforts, his own merit, his own works. Christianity is a relationship with God based upon the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So there is a, a vast distinction. So the cosmic system includes the whole gamut of religions, philosophies, cultures, political theories. It's a great time to be talking about political theories. The psalmist says that it's better to trust in God than in kings. See, God's solution is the only solution. The political solution is no solution. And right now we need to be reminded in this election year that there are no messiahs. It's despite their promises and their claims, there are no messiahs on the political horizon. The only messiah is Jesus Christ, and we're going to see some of the problems related to politics and cosmic thinking a little later on. Cosmic system includes religious philosoph religions, philosophies, cultures, political theories, economic theories, ethical systems. There are a vast number, almost as many different ways of organizing cosmic thought as there are people. But at the very center of all of these competing philosophies and religions and everything else are two fundamental characteristics, and these two characteristics are what define cosmic thinking. The first is arrogance. Arrogance. And let me give you a couple of synonyms for this. Arrogance or autonomy from the Greek word autos and namos, meaning self-law, that ultimately man puts or centers the ultimate authority for truth in the universe in the creation itself rather than in God. Man wants to be the one who defines the purpose and the meaning and significance of life. Sometimes that's in the individuals, sometimes it's governments. Uh, governments often want to be the ones that define uh, the ultimate meaning and purpose of life and claim for themselves the ability to, uh, to provide that. So on one side there is arrogance. This is exemplified by Satan and his five I wills given in Isaiah 14, uh, about 15 through 17, when Satan uttered his five I wills that he would ascend to heaven. There is this it's autonomy and it's an assertion of independence from God that I can find meaning, significance in life. I can define the issues in life, solve the problems of life on my own, independent from God. 
Now that's one side of it. The other side of it is an antagonism to the truth. Antagonism to Christianity. Antagonism to doctrine expressed in this passage by the word hatred. Now this is a very important word here because it tells you, tells us, that as believers, the cosmic system around us and that permeates everything that we are involved in, this cosmic system despises you as a believer. It hates you as a believer. And you are walking around from the moment you trust Christ as your Savior with one big bullseye right in the middle of your forehead. And the world system is aiming at you and will be aiming at you day in and day out. The problem with most Christians is they would rather uh, compromise and assimilate with the world system to avoid being the target, which means they've been shot at and hit, rather than relying exclusively upon God. According to the Scriptures, and this is not popular, we saw some examples of this this last week in the political arena, but according to the Scriptures, there are only two competing ways of approaching life. Only two competing ways of approaching life. There is God's way, which is expressed in the Bible and is called doctrine. It's called truth, light, wisdom. And sometimes I refer to it as divine viewpoint. That the scripture presents a internally consistent and coherent view, God's viewpoint on every issue of life. From, from music to art to law to personal life and marriage. Every subject is addressed in the Word of God and gives us a framework for addressing that. So the Bible claims to present God's way of looking at life, called doctrine, truth, light, or wisdom, and man's way, which is called earthly, natural, and demonic in James 3, uh, 13 through 15, it is also referred to as darkness, it is called the lie, and it is foolishness. The Proverbs say there is a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is death. There may be 50 ways to leave your lover, but there are thousands of ways to uh, put together human viewpoint systems of thinking. But ultimately, they are one. They express an attitude of arrogance and independence of God, and secondly, an antagonism and hatred to the truth. As I said, the root idea of cosmos is an orderly, systematic approach to life, and so the cosmic system then is antagonistic and hateful of you as a believer and continuously wars against you to get you to compromise with it. Now, the first thing we're going to see as to why the cosmic system hates you is in verse 18. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. So, first class condition here at the beginning. Greek has four different ways of expressing conditional clauses. That way, Greek is a more, much more precise language than English. It's always interesting to work with various languages in preparation for a little trip I'm taking next summer to uh, teach some pastors in Kazakhstan. I've been 
taking some classes in Russian just to learn, you know, a little survival Russian, you know, like where's the bathroom and where's the airport and how can I get out of here, do things like that. And uh, Russian is not a very precise language. It is, uh, you see some things like if, you talk, if you're with, with someone and you say, this is my girlfriend, in English, you know, that, that has certain romantic overtones to it. But in Russian, it just, if you're with anyone that is a friend that is, if you're a male, and, and, and well, if they're female, uh, that can cover the whole gamut. It's just a friend that's female, or it can be romantic, or it can be your wife, or, you know, it could be anything. But in English, we have more precise phrases. Another thing that's difficult in Russian is that in, in the Russian language, there are no definite articles, no indefinite articles. So that makes it very difficult, especially if you're trying to define some points of Greek grammar where you're referring to the fact that a word has a definite article and they don't have a clue what you're talking about. Like, what's an article? It goes right over their head. So languages are more precise, some are less precise, but Greek has four ways, really five ways, before expression in the Bible of expressing conditional clauses. And the if here is a first-class condition which implies the truth of the protasis, that is the if clause, the conditional clause. So this would be, has the sense, if the world hates you, and it does. It is antagonistic to you. Satan is the ruler of this cosmic system. We see that in verse 30 of John 14, when Jesus said, I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world, that is Satan, is coming. The ruler of the cosmos. Satan is the ruler of the cosmic system. Now remember, ever since the fall of man, man has been living in a fallen system, in a cosmic system that is, that has been a target of Satan's. And throughout history, God has provided various protections for the human race from the incursions of Satan and the demons so that the human race can survive in the angelic conflict. Now if we look at the Old Testament dispensations, we have two broad ages, the age of the Gentiles from Adam to Abraham, the age of the Jews from Abraham to the cross. During that time, God provided for the protection of the human race, uh, specifically at Sinai when he gave the law, and uh, before that through the various covenants to provide a, a, a framework of legal protection that if man uh, operated within those establishment principles, there would be a measure of protection from the evil that would ensue. In the period prior to the flood, from the fall to the flood, there was the satanic attack on the human race when the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and took for themselves uh, wives among men. We do not know all the dynamics, but we do know that if you're honest with the text, that the sons of God is a technical term for angels. Everywhere it's used in the Old Testament. New Testament, it refers to believers. But in the Old Testament, it's always a term for angels. And that somehow they uh, were able to manufacture for themselves human bodies and to procreate in a way, an attempt to destroy the genetic purity of the human race and thus prevent God's plan of salvation. And God had to judge the earth at the flood. Later he had to judge it at the Tower of Babel to to scatter the languages in order to protect man. So we see, and then, and then third, God called out the nation Israel through Abraham in order to provide a, uh, 
a specific nation through whom he would work his grace initiative plan. And so we see God's continuous work to protect the nation. Now, primarily the way he did this in the Old Testament was through uh, the divine institutions. Now, those are still operative today, but we also have the Holy Spirit in the church who is to restrain evil. Now, what are these five divine institutions? And frankly, I think that with the way my voice is going, I'm just going to cover this for introduction and then call it a morning because it's about to go, isn't it? I can feel it. Five divine institutions. The first divine institution is individual responsibility. This is included in the mandate, the prohibition, not to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It is individual human responsibility. We are responsible and accountable for our own actions, no matter what they might be, no matter what the environmental pressures might be, no matter what the uh, genetic pressures might be or genetic backgrounds might be, no matter how our parents may have failed us, no matter what our friends may have enticed us to do, the issue is individual responsibility. For good or for ill, everybody has freedom, freedom to succeed and freedom to fail. Now, freedom is very important in the spiritual life because without freedom, there is no way to move forward in the spiritual life. Freedom, of course, includes the right to privacy, the freedom to make your own decisions and to suffer your own consequences for both success and failure. That's why privacy, we saw it a little bit in our study of the Mosaic Law this morning, is fundamental to all law. And we really run some are in dangerous territory today with the uh, electronic media and computers. I'm not saying they're evil, but because of the Internet and the information that's out there and available, we are abdicating a tremendous amount of privacy. People have access to all sorts of information about us, and to the degree that you lose privacy, to that same degree you lose freedom. So the purpose for human responsibility was to guarantee right to privacy, right to freedom, personal responsibility, that we would not be coerced from some outside force to conform to their agenda, whether that is a totalitarian type of government that is seeking to force us in obedience in one direction or another, a socialist economic system, or satanic opposition. See, ultimately, it's got to go back to the angelic conflict and spiritual realities. So this first divine institution is the basis for understanding and operating on freedom. Now, with true freedom, there is very little security. This is a problem we're running into in our country. People would rather have security than freedom. Because if we fail, there are negative consequences. We don't like that, so we, don't, we want somebody to provide a safety net, so we want to give the government the right to provide security. Well, there's no government on earth in human history that can provide security. Security does not reside with human institutions or with human beings. So if we give up security, what we're, uh, if we opt for security, all we are doing is giving up uh, freedom. When you, have, uh, when you have true freedom, then you have the freedom both to succeed and the freedom to uh, fail. Whenever we start looking to someone else to guarantee our security, whether it's an employer, whether it's a spouse, whether it's a friend, whether it's somebody else, whatever it may be, whenever we look to somebody else to provide security for us, then we are, in essence, enslaving ourselves to that institution or that individual or that institution. There is no security, there is no equality in this life apart from our relationship 
to Jesus Christ. So the first divine institution protects us, gives us individual uh, responsibility. Second divine institution is marriage, which is a stabilizer of society, instituted in the Garden of Eden, and is designed to be between one man and one woman. It is not designed to be between members of the same sex. It is uh, the stabilizer. It is, pro- provides stability for the home life so that children can grow up in an environment where there is a measure of security during their developmental years so that they can then um, have a measure of stability in their life to be productive as adults. So marriage is a core unit for stabilizing society. And then third is the family, the family structure. Fourth is human government, which was established in the Noahic Covenant at the conclusion of the fall, when, I mean at the conclusion of the flood when God delegated the responsibility of judicial decision for capital punishment. Capital punishment has been delegated by God, even though in his omniscience he knows that man will not always use it well, rightfully. Sometimes innocent victims are going to be executed. Frankly, if you are opposed to the death penalty, um, for that reason, then, then if you were in control of the Roman Empire, we would not have a salvation, because our salvation is based upon the irresponsible use and the wrong use of the death penalty and the execution of an innocent uh, man. So the death penalty was clearly established uh, by God. And, you know, just a little application. We're talking about the cosmic system. If you don't like the death penalty, now it may be, there may be more efficient ways to, uh, to utilize it. I'm not arguing that. But if you're just against it in principle, then you have succumbed to cosmic thinking at that point because that's a violation of the Word of God. Um, Human government's delegated at that point. Incidentally, you know, if you ever get in a discussion with somebody, I remember when I was in the seventh grade, I wrote a paper on uh, capital punishment. And um, I think that the teacher wrote on there, well, doesn't the Bible say something about an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth? Uh, no, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And I responded by saying, yes, but he delegated that responsibility to us. Uh, it's not vengeance. Capital punishment is not vengeance. Every time you get see some idiot on television talking about this, they bring up this idea of vengeance. It has nothing to do with vengeance. It doesn't even have anything to do with, with um, um, uh, restraining people. Uh, that's not, when the scripture says to execute someone who takes the life of another, it's because man is in the image of God, and when you take the life of another human being, you are making a theological statement and it is attack upon the person of God because you are killing that which is in his image. It has nothing to do with restraint. It has nothing to do with uh, providing a little negative reinforcement to criminals and causing them to think twice about their actions. It has nothing to do with vengeance. That is not the basis. And, and the reason we get off into all these net arguments on capital punishment they always look at it for the wrong reason, and as soon as you reduce it to some pragmatic basis, then you will have problems. But the Bible doesn't argue and doesn't put forth capital punishment on a pragmatic basis. It doesn't say execute criminals so that you'll restrain others. It says execute them because they have uh, deteriorated in their soul to such a degree that they're taking an attack against the image, an image bearer of God, and therefore they need to be removed. They have forfeited their right to life. It's human government. The fifth is national distinctions, which was established at the Tower of Babel. When God divided the languages, then the result of that was the division of, of the people into 
people groups and tribes and nations. And whenever nations and governments began to expand to become an empire, they began to dominate other groups. They always take on messianic complexes, much like they did at the Tower of Babel. There was a theological reason for why they built the Tower of Babel. They wanted to assert their independence from God. It was an example of cosmic thinking. They were asserting their independence of God, antagonism to God. They were not going to obey God and scatter and fill the earth. They were going to instead stay in one place and build this tower so they wouldn't be scattered. They were taking a position against God, so it was arrogant independence, number one, and hostility to God, number two, and that is worldliness. Now, of course, the parallel today is the United Nations, which is nothing more than a modern example of the Tower of Babel and the attempt to unite mankind internationally against God. So, once again, we see uh, examples of worldly thinking and internationalism. The purpose of government is to protect the personal rights and freedoms of the citizen. It is fundamentally to restrain evil and criminality within a nation through a police force and to protect the nation from external enemies through a strong military. It is not the purpose of government to provide security. God, Remember, God is the one who uh, instituted government, so it is God is the one who defines its purpose. It's not man who defines government's purpose. As soon as you start looking to man and to sociology and, and to the uh, collective opinions of man as the basis for the function of government, you're into cosmic thinking. You're, once again, ignoring the truth of God's Word. You're starting in the creation rather than with the Creator. And so you are going to end up in some sort of fallacious system. The purpose of government is to protect personal rights and freedoms and to restrain criminality and to protect against enemies from outside. Now, those are the basic ideas that were inherent in the philosophy that undergirded the U.S. Constitution. Now, not every influence that was brought to bear on the U.S. Constitution in the late 1700s was definitely biblical. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that the predominant thinking of the framers of the Constitution came out of a more biblical framework. In contrast, you had Jefferson's writing of the Declaration of Independence, which was based more consistently upon a... um, uh, an enlightenment view of man who had started with man is basically good. Now, if you want to read a, any, something that will challenge your brain cells a little bit, and, you know, you ought to read a book by one of our generation's greatest intellectuals by the name of Thomas Sowell. He's written a book called Conflict of Visions. What he basically demonstrates, you go all, he goes back to Edmund Burke in the 1700s, basically demonstrates that, well, he starts off, he says, why is it that on any social issue, whether it's welfare, capital punishment, um, taxation, health care, you pick it, whatever it is, why is it that certain people always end up on one side of the aisle and other people always tend to line up on the other side of the aisle? Birds of a feather flock together. Why is it that on any given issue, the same people always tend to line up on the same side? It's because they have different views, visions, worldviews of life. And basically, the underlying worldview of liberalism is that man is basically good and is improvable. 
And on the other side, the conservative side basically looks at man as basically evil and not improvable. Now, if you take that as your two different, I'm really simplifying. If you take that as your two different starting points, you're going to have two different ways of dealing with society. And law and legislation is how you deal with society and societal problems. And so it's an excellent analysis, and Sowell is just a brilliant thinker. And operate, he's not a believer. I, I don't know. I have no idea what, what, he, what he is. But he is, he is a, a profound thinker, very, very clear. And the issues are these underlying assumptions. And the reason I bring that in is because as believers, we're commanded to renovate our thinking and, and not be conformed to the world. And that means we have to think deeply about all of our presuppositions about life and what makes up life and problem solving and society and politics and everything else. And we have to see that, that Satan is out to blind us to the truth and that we have to rethink everything so that when we get involved, like we are in a political year, we can make wise decisions because all these candidates are exemplifying different degrees of cosmic thinking. You're never going to find a uh, candidate that's going to really come out and be solid in every single arena, and you have to pick uh, whichever one that, that uh, you think is uh, most consistent and will do the least damage sometimes. And uh, every one of them is affected by different things. I mean, this last week we saw that one of the primary uh, characteristics of modern cosmic thinking in our generation is postmodernism. Postmodernism, the greatest sin is to believe there are absolutes. The greatest good is tolerance. Tolerance isn't defined as it used to be as accepting another person's hostile viewpoint and being willing to live with it and work together. But tolerance now means you must affirm the other person. You must validate their viewpoint. You can't just say, well, I disagree with homosexuality, that the Bible forbids it, prohibits it, as it does adultery and murder and thievery and everything else. I can't, uh, uh, you know, you, you might be a homosexual, practicing homosexual, and I am not going to validate your uh, behavior, but I'm not going to judge you and condemn you because that's not my role. But that's tolerance. But today, tolerance is being redefined as approval. So George W. goes down and, and teaches at Bob Jones, or speaks at Bob Jones, and he's immediately accused of, of aligning himself with all of their practices, and, and he's accused of being intolerant. That's the big sin today is intolerant. Of course, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you take a position that there's only one way to heaven, then you're intolerant. You've committed the great cultural sin now, and you're going to be in trouble. Now, I don't mean to imply by that that, that Bob Jones is necessarily Christian or that I approve of everything that Bob Jones University uh, College stands for. In fact, uh, they put out a book about one of my favorite pastors not about 20 or 30 years ago, and it was mostly lies and misrepresentation. Uh, there are a lot of things I don't agree with at Bob Jones University because I think they're full of legalism. But uh, every conservative candidate for the last 25 years has spoken in chapel there. Why are all of a sudden we're going to take pot shots at, at George W.? Because the climate, the cosmic climate has changed. So that now we're living in an era where tolerance is the great cultural good, and anybody who says we've got the only way is intolerant. Of course, you know, the news media never tells you that this, this um, that Bob Jones IV is working on a graduate degree at that anti-Catholic school called 
over in Indiana called Notre Dame. I mean, that just missed them. I mean, it's just the, the distortion in the news media is incredible. But the point is that this is where cosmic thinking is. It is a systematic antagonism to the truth, and even if it blows it out of proportion, uh, it, it always does that. Now, you know, I, I'm not saying that as a, you know, I'm not trying to tell anybody how to vote or how not to vote. I mean, I think that that, uh, that just shows how one candidate, McCain, yielded to uh, postmodernism and worldly thinking on his side, but but uh, George W. did it the same way on his side as soon as he apologized. He shouldn't apologize. He should have just come right out and said, look, you invited somewhere to speak. You never, ever say something derogatory or judgmental or condemnatory when you're a guest somewhere. That's just bad manners. and It's impolite, and I wasn't going to do it. I don't care how bad their views are. I don't care how wrong they are. It's not when you're invited somewhere, you don't you know, badmouth the host. That's bad manners. And uh, he could have said a few other things to set the record straight, but instead he yielded to that pressure of intolerance and, and apologized. And that just uh, validates the world system. So these are just some, I'm just using these as some examples to help us understand how the world is antagonistic to us. The scripture says, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it has hated you. And the point is that the cosmic system hates and despises you if you are a believer. This is a very strong word for hate in the Greek. It's meseo. It doesn't even need to be intensified with a preposition to have an intensive meaning. It just has it all by itself. And that all of the legalism, religion, atheism, secularism, modernism, postmodernism, liberalism ideas hates Christians. They despise us. When you go into the classroom in sociology, history, biology, political science, whatever it may be, business, economics, they are teaching from a human viewpoint framework. And no matter how much you may agree or disagree at one point or another, there is antagonism and hatred between the world system and biblical system, and there is no arena of compromise. So the first reason that the world hates us is because it hates Christ. Secondly, well, I'm going to come back and do the next seven next time because my voice is just about shot and I don't think I can make it. So we have set it up as to why the world system, the cosmic system, hates us. And we'll come back next time and develop that more fully with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you so much for your grace that you have provided everything for us. You have not only given us salvation, but you have given us much more. You have given us your word, the clarity of your word that teaches us everything about life and how to think and how to look at everything from the perspective of your divine truth. You have illuminated our minds. In this church age, you've given us the Holy Spirit who indwells us and teaches us. Father, we pray if there's anyone here this morning who is uncertain of their eternal destiny, unsure of their salvation, that they would take this time to make that certain. All you have to do is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, the Scripture says, and you will be saved. It's not a matter of feeling sorry for your sins. It's not a matter of giving anything up. It's not a matter of moral reformation to impress God. simply a matter of accepting a free gift that Jesus Christ died on the cross as your substitute. He paid the penalty for your sins so that you could have eternal life. All you have to do right now, right where you sit, 
is silently in your soul say, I believe Jesus Christ died for my sins. If you truly believe that, you have eternal life. Father, we now thank you for the challenge that you have given us to look at the world around us and cosmic thinking and help us to perceive these uh, false systems of thinking in our own souls that we may root it out under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit so we can advance to spiritual maturity. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.